the Sober Experiment podcast by Be Sober. I'm Alex, one half of Be Sober. And I'm Lisa, the other half. If you're new to our podcast, Lisa and I have been best friends since high school. And after many years of getting drunk together pretty much every weekend, we've decided to experiment with being sober together. We really haven't got time to tell you all about that now, but if you go right back to the beginning of our podcast series, you'll find out all about it there. This season, we're super excited to be working with Wise Bartender and can't wait to sample and, of course, tell you about their 450 plus alcohol free drinks. So, whether you're after some alcohol free beers, ciders, wines, cocktails, or spirits, then check them out. We absolutely love that they're a growing family business. They've got a fantastic ethos around making sure quality alcohol-free drinks are accessible for absolutely everyone. Well as having alcohol-free equivalents, they also have an amazing range of kombuchas and sodas, along with a number of curated packs. Shop the range at wisebartender.co.uk and get 5% off with our code BESOBER5. Hello, how is everyone and how are you, Lisa? I'm all right, thank you. You shocked me then. <laughs> what they to ask everybody. <laughs> everybody <laughs> how they are, yeah. I know, I've learned that now. After you did it a couple of weeks or a couple of episodes back, I thought, oh, I better start asking. <laughs> I know, there you go, nicking again. <laughs> I help myself, you know what I'm like. So, yeah, how was everything? All good? Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to today's episode, to be honest with you. Can I just say, that's such a lame question. That You just said to me then, how is everything? All good. Like, if it wasn't, I would now not say to you, oh, no, actually, it's not. You led me to say, yeah, like... Ah, you see, now the way I said it, I went, all good? Question. if, If someone asked it like that for me, I'd say, well, actually, no, it's not. But you wouldn't. No, I, I don't. And I don't mean it you per, like personally, yeah, yeah. but that's what people do in it. They ask you, but actually, do they, do they really mean it? Like, because when you do say that, like, oh, are you? All good. I definitely would not be the type of person to one thing you would genuinely really wanted to know who I was. So I'd be like, yeah, yeah, thanks. See you. Which I did. That My automatic reaction was, yeah. I didn't have anything else to say, but actually I am all right. It is yeah. Oh my gosh. One of those people who moans about things that don't even count. <laughs> no, it, does, it just got me thinking like about asking people how they are like, not you. And I mean this, honestly, but <laughs> like, like it's me, doesn't it? Sounds like it's me. it does sound like it. It does sound like it, but just in general, right. Don't ask people if you don't genuinely mean it. So maybe I did we genuinely should... mean it though. I want you to know that I did genuinely mean it. I was just, I can't, do you know what it is? Because I'm asking you, I kind of know it's all good because I spoke to you about eight hours ago. So unless well, anything really, unless anything know, especially tragic. my house, Jesus Christ. Oh, can I say that? I didn't mean to say that. But like, in my it. house, it all goes off at that time with teenagers. No, that's true. But um, anyway, let's start that again. How is everything, Lisa? All good. (laughs) Brilliant. Right, come on, as long as you're all good, tell us about today's guest. Oh, I forgot that I do this bit. Oh, for goodness sake. I know, I'm so sorry, I wasn't prepared. Right, okay, so today we've got the lovely Sarah Drage. 
Yes. yes, she got it right. Yes. <laughs> you have no idea. You can't see our faces now, but she's like saying it and nodding. So like, is that right? <laughs> I'm looking for confirmation through the screen. So Sarah, um, we've both actually got quite a lot in common with Sarah. So it's going to be a really lovely, interesting chat. But Sarah actually lost her dad to alcohol addiction in 2017. And she massively believes that the stigma attached to his illness prevents him from actually accessing life-saving support um, and as a consequence of her dad's addiction Sarah then developed OCD, anxiety and PTSD which enabled her to properly understand what her dad was going through himself um, she also says that that kind of led to an immense amount of guilt because she only understood once it actually died um so yeah it's going to be really lovely to speak to Sarah because she's actually doing so much in the community to help remove the stigma so can't wait to find out more got a TED talk as well aren't she a TEDx talk she has yeah yeah we'll put, the, we'll put the link to that in um the bio and the description as well so yeah let's hear from her hi Sarah Yay. how are you yeah <laughs> <laughs> goodness for that I'm literally I'm literally I'm using my phone because I'm in between um working my part-time job <laughs> oh hey it's absolutely fine don't worry we've had we've had some very strange um places for podcasts so it's definitely not the strangest one um but yeah <laughs> how are you podcast in the car <laughs> In fact, weirdly enough, Sarah, Sober Dave, that you've done quite a bit of work with, his podcast yeah. was done from his car. <laughs> oh, why did. was it? Yeah. <laughs> from Sainsbury's car park, wasn't it, Lisa? Yeah. Oh, do you know, that's funny. I'm in, I'm in Tesco's car park. That is so funny. <laughs> I can't wait to tell him. Like, I never oh. could do all the supermarkets. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder whether you've planned it with him. Let's, let's do another one from the car. <laughs> We're so classy, aren't we? There could be something in there. (laughs) You've been doing quite a bit of work with Dave, haven't you? You've done some schools and colleges and things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Do you know what? We've built up such an incredible friendship and like developed this bond that it's almost like a little bit father and daughterly like. It's so, it's so, it's lovely. Like he's really taken me under his wing and we're in touch most days and his wife is amazing absolutely yeah like the first time I met him was um virtually and we just hit it off straight away like she's just such a lovely person you know when you really kind isn't she warm yeah like yeah and like you can just that connection and that bond with her was just instant so yeah there's not many like there's not many people you can gel with like that and come away thinking I feel like I've known you for years but yeah she's yeah Especially virtually. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm meeting on Saturday for the first time properly. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's so lovely. I feel like we, I mean, I have met Dave once, but I feel like I've met him more than that. I don't know what, similar reasons probably, but we did obviously spend all that time doing the sober sessions as well. So I was going to say, yeah, it was like a weekly thing. Like at one point when the pandemic first hit and we did the sober sessions every single Saturday, but then we was literally in contact, all of us, every day. It like took over our entire lives, didn't it? So you do feel like you've met people. It's, yeah, um, we're chatting, aren't we? I, I still find it weird that we haven't met William Porter yet because I really feel like we've met him we haven't that's weird 
Obvious a weirder for me than everyone else. The friendships you build, the friendships you build online, and especially within this community, it's just, I think it's really, it's really pretty special. I think we say this all the time, but the sober community is one of the most accepting, non-judgmental, kindest places. I mean, it can, it can have its extremes where it's not, but in general, it's one of the kindest places to be in online, I've found. So much in, sorry, Sarah, go on. (laughs) We've just got, oh, (laughs) (laughs) you go. I can't even blame bad connection for that. Because <laughs> we're all I'm trying to say that it's so good. I, I recognise the accent. I'm from Leeds. So oh, I've, got, yeah. Yeah, I've got a southern accent, but whenever I hear that, like, and I'm guessing it's Yorkshire, isn't it? Yorkshire. Just the border. Just the uh, border. Okay, yeah. yeah. But I just sense it straight away. I'm like, Oh, friend. <laughs> <laughs> we're just on the other side. We're on the Lancashire-Yorkshire border. So we're literally, just, honestly, we're about, well, not so much me anymore, but where, where we grew up is walking distance to the Yorkshire border. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. It gets moved born, quite a bit, weirdly. Sorry? The border gets moved quite a bit, weirdly, but we're definitely <laughs> still Lancashire. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It does get moved. Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> People insisting they are, and I'm. Sorry, I don't know what's going on with our delays here, but I bet people listening to this are going to be like, why are you all talking over each other? What's wrong with you all today? (laughs) There's a big delay. There actually is quite a delay, isn't there? Sorry, guys. (laughs) We have got a storm going on here at the moment when we're recording this, so that might be it. Uh, But we'll do our best to come through it because obviously you've got... um, an interesting and heartwarming story to tell. So let, let's start there. So before we get into your story, can you tell us about the work that you're doing and the work that you do that's helping to remove the stigma of alcoholism and, and then what drives you to do that? Yeah, so, oh, wow. Okay, first thing in the morning, I've had my coffee, so I should be a functioning. Um, so I lost my dad in 2017 to alcohol use disorder. And prior to that, I had developed my own anxieties um and that was mainly spurred on by my um second pregnancy so that was 2014 developed really really bad health anxiety which I now know was a manifestation of not being able to control my dad's drinking because I was the eldest child I took on that role of trying to protect him trying to fix him um always battling the issue um, and I couldn't control it. I never had any control over his drinking. Um, and it makes you feel powerless. It makes you feel um, like everything's slipping away in front of you and you cannot do anything about it. So my anxiety, which I didn't realize at the time, um, focused on my own health. And I suppose it was at a time when I felt the most settled I've ever felt in my entire life. I'd just gotten married. Um, we just bought a house. I was pregnant with my second child. Everything was perfect. And people used to say to me, you've got nothing to be anxious about. Why are you so anxious? You've got everything. Your life's perfect. To which I would reply, well, that's exactly the problem. Everything is perfect and it could be taken away from me at any moment. And I'm not used to this. I'm not used to this stability, this kind of um, feeling. uh, When I say safe, I don't feel like I don't, I mean, I never felt safe as a child. I did. My mum and dad 
were absolutely amazing. Despite my dad's drinking, um, my dad loved us dearly and we knew that. But it was a stability of mood, if you know yeah, what yeah. I mean. Like that kind of um, what mood was he in. So I'm in my own environment. I've got nothing to feel anxious about. We bought our home. I was a young mum anyway, so there was a stigma of that against me, which I was constantly trying to battle against and prove against the stereotype and that discrimination. Um, and I developed anxiety and then my dad's drinking escalated and it just got worse. The older I got, it was the worst it got. My mum and dad separated, which spurred his drinking on. It got even, it, it was, it became out of control. Um, I always felt, again, I was stuck in that stigma. I was a young mum. We'd come from a deprived area where my dad sadly went through something traumatic. We ended up having to move um, counties. Um, and then we're living in, and I hate saying this, but it was classed with, with class of disadvantage where my mum's working all the hours under the sun. My dad passed out most days on the sofa. And again, you're battling that. We're, we're living down south, so it's quite an affluent area. And if you don't come from having money, or you, it, I was one of the rare kids, let's put it that way, one of the kids mm-hmm. that um, didn't have the same privileges or the same advantages that a lot of my peers had. So there was a constant stigma within my life that I felt like I had to brush under the carpet and I couldn't talk about, which obviously escalated those anxieties. And it weren't until my dad died that I suddenly realised that that silence and that brushing things under the carpet, that feeling like we couldn't talk or open up was actually making things a lot worse. And I, I believe that it contributed to my dad's death. I believe that stigma and that shame, and I always say to people, my dad and us, we were shamed into being silent. We were shamed into keeping quiet about his addiction, about everything we were going through because of the way society perceives you and the way you're automatically cast aside as dysfunctional or incapable if you come from anything other than what they deem as normal functioning family life. Um, So it was after that that I really realized the importance of speaking openly and having that confidence and it was when it was after my dad died I got the own my own support my own help um to help with my anxiety to help with the trauma of watching him die to help the trauma of living with his addiction um and I became empowered by that kind of liberated by all of that stigma um and it felt good it felt really good because all of a sudden I can have these conversations with people and I don't feel embarrassed anymore and I don't feel ashamed and I feel proud of what I've been through and I felt like it had developed me and turned me into a better person. I was a better version of myself and I knew that if something positive could come from my dad's death, then he would have liked that and that's what he would have wanted and that sounds really cliche. So. What I did at the beginning, and I'll be really honest, I was still a little bit embarrassed about my dad's alcohol addiction. So I was quite confident to talk about my own mental health. But I was a little bit more coy about the alcohol use disorder because, again, and I, I think we're coming out of that, and I think there's more awareness now. I still think there's a lot, a long way to go. But a few years ago, it was that awkward look. You tell somebody how he died, and it was a case of, oh, uh, how do I... How do we respond to that? How, what do we say back to that? Um, 
they don't, they don't engage with you, do they, when you say it? No. Like, oh, yeah, my dad died because he um, died of liver failure or died of heart disease due to his alcoholism. It, it just shuts the conversation right yeah. down and, like, people don't know where to look. And you, no, it, it, yeah. it, 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 there's an awkward look. It's the case of, oh, what do I say to that? And so I used to say that he had a heart attack, and he didn't. It, it's on his death certificate. Um, alcohol related it was like export even I've forgotten but it's all alcohol related it even says that on a death certificate it's alcohol induced liver disease and excess and um, multiple organ failure as a result of excessive drinking that is on a death certificate and I say to people oh we had a heart attack because not just because I felt ashamed but because I felt like it was a disloyalty to him so um fast um, rewind a little bit I after he died, about 18 months after he died, I set up a Facebook group um, and it was originally between friends and family where we talk about um, our mental health, but we talk about it openly, like we talk about having a headache. And that's the whole point in the group that it was a safe space to share your story, share what you've been through, liberate yourself from that stigma, embrace what you've been through and own it, like own that experience. And it, we were called Warrior Women. Right, okay. Um, and it kind of just escalated and snowballed. And I knew that I wanted to take it further. Um, so I paired up with, um, I call them my co-founders, my co-founders because we collectively came together with a professional filmmaking team. Um, and we developed Warrior Kind. So we wanted warrior women to be inclusive of everyone. So it was a spin-off humankind. And we called ourselves Warrior Kind. And we developed this model, this strategy where we would create educational content around mental health um where we'd feature experts talking about therapies what to expect just to take away the fear of the unknown and um, but also we film um real people talking about their experiences and we turn them into little mini films little mini documentary series but on top of that we deliver talks in schools we provide mental health first day training um and we provide consultancy to court um like large corporate organisations were still very much in our infancy. That kind of developed from me feeling that shame and stigma. So the whole point of Warrior Kind is that we're normalising conversations. We're liberating- that's still very much going on now because that was what we were going to ask you to tell us a bit more about Warrior Kind. Is that very much still happening, yes, still absolutely. a big focus? Yeah, absolutely. We're, like I said, we're still very much in our infancy. We're still evolving. Um, we've been crippled a lot in terms of funding we're a new organization so it's very difficult to get off the ground with minimal budgets especially when you're a not-for-profit organization and um, we're limited <laughs> tell by us about it. <laughs> we know all about that i tell you sarah in fact your your life is a hybrid of Matt and lisa's we relate between you relate to you more than you probably know <laughs> oh wow amazing that's amazing though and lovely because like do you know what stuff like this as hard as it is and don't get me wrong there's been so many times and especially recently where I felt like this is too hard I can't yeah. do this anymore I've had enough but then I've got an amazingly supportive husband in the background that goes nope you found your purpose you keep going like it's n- nothing worth having is easy he keeps reminding me um, so it was literally I set up Warrior Kind and then I came out of my shell a little bit so to speak so prior to Warrior Kind I felt like I'd graduated from university when I was pregnant 
after being pregnant, I went through all of the issues I did with mental health, um, my dad's addiction, losing my dad's addiction. So I always felt like I was keeping down a safe, uh, I wouldn't say dead-end job, but a boring role that I weren't interested in. Um, so I didn't have that confidence or that belief in myself that I could create something like Warrior Kind. Um, I felt like I weren't good enough do that so I battled a lot of imposter syndrome at the beginning and it was a friend of mine at the time and we've um, become really close Emma um she got a role with TEDx Folkestone and she like like when you're in that role you're not allowed to be part of the application process for anybody you know due to conflict of interest but she really encouraged me to apply and I kept thinking no nobody really wants to hear my like hear my idea because my idea around the stigma I always used to talk about it to her like stigma killed my dad it weren't alcohol well it was the alcohol but the stigma ultimately killed him and I'll go a little bit more into detail why I, I thought that later on she applied me um she encouraged me to apply for TEDx and I, I got it and they loved the idea they'd never really thought about alcohol use disorder from that perspective before and they were quite taken back by it so that whole process, that six months of preparing for that TEDx talk, did so much for my confidence. TEDx folks in are amazing at developing the speakers throughout that process. And there's actually two pictures which you can compare of like me at the beginning looking like this nervous little, like this just nervous woman unsure of herself, massively affected by imposter syndrome to the last picture of me speaking, this empowered like this is me, this is me embracing and sharing this story and I'm no longer ashamed of this anymore and all of a sudden it developed this passion and this fire within to think that yes there's a stigma attached to mental health and that's what we're working on but you know what there's a bigger stigma attached to? Addiction, alcohol use disorder and and I, I focus a lot on alcohol because it's legal it's accessible, it's legal, and it's treated differently to smoking. Like cigarettes are covered behind a screen, whereas alcohol is easily accessible, it's in your face, it's glamorized, it's promoted. If you go to a party and you don't drink, then you're either boring or if you're a woman, you're pregnant or you're the designated driver. So it really used to grate on me, and especially at the beginning of the pandemic, what really set it off was I got involved, and I, I never get involved in Facebook arguments but I don't like it but something really bugged me somebody said that um and random person on Facebook and I couldn't I, yeah I, I don't like I, said, I don't get involved in them but this one I had I, I couldn't help I couldn't help myself they said alcohol isn't an ex, isn't a um what's the word I can't think What's that word? Oh my goodness, I can't think of that happens word. This. It happens. It, what is that word where you, it's not an essential item? Okay. People are going in, getting their alcohol. It's not an essential item. These people are taking up A&E time. They're, take, they're, they're taking up the NHS. It's their own fault. We, they, they should have their NHS rights taken away from them when there's people that actually need that support. Oh, it got me really vented and angry. And um, I kind of replied with a little bit of educational stuff around how, you know, for some people, like for my dad, alcohol was an essential item because we needed it to function because without a clinical detox, he had no choice but to carry on drinking. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. withdrawal would have killed him. And um, so I said that and then I it went on a little bit. And then I said, well, does that same logic apply to smokers? And 
heart disease caused by obesity or eating the wrong foods. And I kind of um, hit a sensitive spot. And I got really angry. And my husband kind of said to me, you know what? You used to think like these people. Like, it's so true. Yeah. yeah. You used to think like these people. Getting angry at them isn't going to do any good. It's not constructive. It's not healthy. You need to be educating. And I thought, you know what? You've got a point. Because I did. I used to say stuff to my dad like, dad, you're self-inflicting it. This is your own fault. You're doing it to yourself. You've only got yourself to blame. There's worse off. I said the worst things. We'll get back to our chat shortly, but first let us tell you a little bit more about our friends at Wise Bartender. Oh, our lovely friends. So Wise Bartender has the biggest selection of alcohol-free drinks in the world. And the universe, in the universe. No, I don't know whether it, well, we don't know that for a fact, do we? Let's not get into conspiracy theories. This week, we got to try um, the C-Arch, C&T. I think that was so clever, like C&T instead of G&T. Anyway, we tried that and the raw C&T. It's a non-alcoholic distilled spirit with a light Indian tonic. I loved this. I actually loved I loved the feel of the can. That's what I said, and your Sam were laughing at me. But I like it was such a pretty can. It looks nice, it feels nice, it tastes nice. And I, you know, like when you go to say Manchester with your mates on the train and they've all got cans of GT, you could slip one of them in your handbag and still look like you were drinking a GT on the train. Does anybody even want to do that though? I don't know, maybe not. But anyway, you can do it if you want to. And also, just having that little emergency supply for if you're out and about and you get caught without any alcohol-free options. Yeah. another good one. But yeah, I loved it too, Lisa. So it was really... I preferred the rose one, if I'm honest. It was slightly sweeter. But yeah, loved them both. So you can buy these and more at wisebartender.co.uk. Don't forget your code, BSOBER5, for a cheeky 5% discount. I think we all did though, Sarah, you know, and it's it is it's exactly what you're saying. It's lack of education. I saw something, you've just reminded me, I told Lisa the other day, I saw a comment on another TED talk, weirdly, about domestic violence, where somebody had said, I've got no sympathy for these women, they get themselves into these relationships. And I could I was like you, I couldn't help myself but to say, Well, hang on a minute. Do you think that basic I, I didn't put it like this, but do you think that woman was punched in the face on a first date then? Or is it like something that happens you know I was really like I did get into a bit of a rant um but yeah when you feel so passionate about something and you're there on the receiving end I can't can't help it yeah and you made a really good point as well about you know women and alcohol I remember when I first stopped drinking I went to and, and admittedly it was my son's football presentation and it was always a boozy event I'd always joined in every single year with it and just prior to me stopping drinking, and I, I've told this story a thousand times, I'd had a miscarriage, which is what triggered the whole stopping drinking. So um, I turned up at this event and I had my alcohol-free beer and it wasn't at the point I was confident in disclosing it to everybody. But my son came over and went, oh, mum, why are you drinking? And I had to say in front of this crowd, it's alcohol-free. And the woman who I usually drank with just went, I know why, I know why you're pregnant. And I was like, right, okay, well, that's double, double shaming now at the moment because I'm not in a good place. I had to say, no, I'm not. Um, I've, I've decided to stop drinking. It was so publicly embarrassing. Um, I'm not embarrassed at all now, but just at that kind yeah. of point. So I really take your point on that. 
Well, it does. Yeah. It takes a lot. It takes a lot to get over that shame because it's so enmeshed in society. It's so accepted. It's so normalised that it's almost like if you don't drink, you're weird, kind of thing. So, like, I've got a great thing now. I my relationship with alcohol has changed. I don't know if it's a subconscious thing. I, you keep I, answering I, our questions. We've got for you, Sarah. We're like, it's literally so it good at this, Sarah. It is literally ridiculous. Every next question that we've got for you, you just you just flowing into. It's perfect. Carry uh, on. I'm just going to sit back. Yeah, it's so easy. I was going to say, so, in answer to your question, no, um, I, um, my relationship with alcohol has changed massively. Like before my dad died, I used to enjoy having a drink. And my husband used to say to me that you're a go hard or go home kind of girl. Like if I was going out, then I was going out and I was going to get absolutely off my face. That's the Leeds girl in you, Sarah. <laughs> literally, literally is. Like, it, he, and he always used to say, you'll go hard or go home, can't you just take it easy, blah, blah, blah. When he died and I actually had this newfound respect for our liver and alcohol in general and what it does to us and the dangers of it, um, every time I have a drink now, it even makes me really, really tired Um gives me a headache or will just make my stomach churn and I think the last time I had a drink was a few weeks ago I had a cocktail on a night out with the girls when I got home that night my tummy was just churning like I just felt sick and I wasn't drunk I was not drunk I don't have the same effect of it anymore I don't enjoy it um and I I believe it's a subconscious thing I believe there's a resentment and a deep-rooted bitterness there because the smell of it the what it is, I associate alcohol to killing my dad. Well, it is. It's a poison. It's a, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's an absolute fact, dude. So my question then, right, and I'm going to ask you this one outright. Sorry for the intrusion. No, no, no go for it. Do you think you'll stop? Um, I, yeah, I think I could. I think I could either leave it or take it, to be honest. Sometimes I think, why do I even have it? And I don't know if that's, again, just kind of just, enmeshed but I've got so much at home in my cupboards that oh, it's not been touched yeah. my husband's not a heavy drinker he'll, he'll, he might enjoy an occasional drink on a night out with his mate but again we don't go home and we don't um, have a drink it's not something that I particularly enjoy I don't like the way it makes me feel afterwards and again it's that association of it killed my dad so yeah I yeah. suppose He's got you ticking, hasn't he? He's definitely yeah. got the thought process there. I mean, even physiological effects aside, which all of those things you're describing, with it being a depressant, they do that anyway to every drinker. It's just that we're not we're not we're not tuned in to think about it because we're tuned in to think, ah, it's a good time drink, it's partying, it's dancing, it's having a good time. But when you actually become aware of what it's done to somebody you love and what it actually is, you notice those subtle negative impacts, I think, more. You were a go hard or go uh, go on girl, Lisa. Yeah, definitely. Like, what was the point in going out if you weren't going hard? <laughs> <laughs> it was literally pointless. What was the point in having a few? You know, though, Sarah, I really, really admire you for doing this and finding out so soon. Like, Alex and I talk openly, Alex more openly than me, really, about things like this. But my stepdad 
died um, when I was just 18. He was 56. We owned a pub and it was through alcohol. And never, ever, ever, when you were saying that before, you would say it was heart attack. That is literally what I told everybody it was. It was a massive heart attack. And then all his other organs failed. And it's only recently because... Really recently, Lisa. Really recently. I am so open about my own sobriety. I hold no shame there. I am not bothered. I will... Like when Alex was saying that before about the football mums, like I wanted to knock them out and be like, what's it got to do with you? Like I'm, you know, really loud and proud sober. But when it came to somebody like my stepdad, it was like even till recently still, and still I don't know how to handle it. Still I don't know how to really talk about it because I don't want to, you know, he was such an amazing, lovely, funny man that did drink every day um and was you don't want to take that away do you but no and and i don't yeah i don't kind of want to mix the two up and say that he died of alcohol even though that's what it was because maybe somewhere i'm still holding on to that stigma and that shame around it and i think by me being so openly about it is to kind of mask mask that in a way does that make sense to because I sometimes feel like I remember I got invited onto BBC Two Radio Two with Jeremy Vine to talk about my dad's addiction, and I got excited. And then suddenly I got this sick feeling in my stomach, and I said to my, "Oh, you've muted, Sarah. Sorry, just unmute yourself." I. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, can hear yeah, you now. This is so bad that um, I. Sorry, where was I going? Jeremy Vine. Jeremy Vine. Jeremy Vine. Um, I felt like I'm taking advantage of his death yeah. by talking about it. And I felt like I was, um, what's the word? I felt like I was using it to further myself. Yeah, I get, um, that. I get it. I get it. And and right at the beginning, and my dad also died of alcohol, and he had he did have a heart attack, but due to alcoholism. And for at the beginning, I couldn't tell in fact I've made a few fuck-ups, excuse the phrase, telling my story. I really have, because I've told it and I've told it kind of too openly and I've not protected the fact that he was not only an alcoholic, he was a man, he was a musician, he was a father, he was a husband, he was a wonderful person. And I've lost that sometimes. More recently, I've I've reined that in and I've got it exactly right now and I'm not afraid to talk about it anymore. But like you would not have any idea how much both of us can relate to to what you're saying there about your dad. And you know, and and you they can be, they can have an addiction and be a wonderful person. They yeah. can do all those things. And this is the thing, and this is what, but I said it in my TED talk that I actually, before I actually went into detail, I talked about how amazing he was, how loving, how kind, how devoted, and how much of a doting dad he was. Um, because I felt like I needed to say that because there's this preconceived image of how society would view him. Oh, he's an alcoholic, he's, he's this, he's that. And I wanted to take that away and go, no, he's a man, he has a name, he's called. Steve, he's a dad, he's a granddad, yeah. he's a brother-in-law, he's a, he's a son-in-law, he's a son, a stepson. But all of that I needed to tell people because that anonymity around being addicted to alcohol, 
I think really played on us and prevented us from asking for help. It prevented us from saying, as a family, we need support. It was brushed off. What you're talking about with the stigma that killing him, the fact that it was all of that stopped you coming forward because you didn't want to face that? Absolutely. Massively. It really did. And like three days before my dad died, I actually saw him and I'd never, I'd never forget it. And it took a lot of therapy for me to get over the guilt, but he was in a bad way. And I said to him, dad, you have liver failure. You have liver disease. We need to get you to the hospital. And he argued with me and he kind of set the precedence again and said, kind of put me in my place. So I actually, he's like, no, I'm your dad. You will respect my decision. I am not going to hospital. I've done this to myself. I am fine. I will get over it. There are other people that deserve support. I've, I don't want to take up my doctor's time. Three days later, we're switching off his life support. Oh, I'm um, so sorry. That's so sad. And and I realised when we were in A&E why he felt like that. We even had paramedics roll their eyes. Because, I mean, let's face it, oh, when you go into A&E and you admit somebody, it's not a case of um, you don't get any privacy. You tell the receptionist what you're there for. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. Everyone knows why he was there. The looks, the head shakes, the eyeball rolls. And I sat there and I thought, I get it. I get it. Dad, I understand. Like, and then I, I, but it still didn't, I still didn't comprehend the severity of the situation and how ill he was. Even though I had all these doctors telling me, you know, his lungs had filled up with fluid because the liver wasn't um, functioning properly. It wasn't detoxing the blood properly. It was poisoning him. Um, and even up until switching off his life support machine, there was still that denial there. There was still that, has this really happened? Like the shock, it felt like, and, and I always say to people, because people say, because I always say I feel guilty and people say, oh, but it's natural to feel guilty. You will feel guilty after any death. And I'm not taking that away from anybody at all, but I saw him three days before he died and I didn't take him to hospital. It took a lot of therapy for me to get over that. I used to stigmatize him. I used to make him feel like he was doing it to himself. He only had himself to blame. We didn't know. We didn't understand I spent a lot of time hating and resenting him, despite loving him dearly and wanting to help him. And I hate myself for doing that because I should have spent more time understanding what he was going through, which is why now I say to people, whenever they say, have you got any advice? I'll always say, well, I can't give advice. I'm not a professional. But if I knew then what I know now, I would say, don't spend your time being bitter and resentful. Accept that they've got an illness. Remove that stigma and Encourage them to get support. I'm not saying that will work for everyone. It doesn't. Some people don't feel that shame and they just don't want to get help. And that's sad, but it's just the reality of the illness. But for some people, I feel like with my dad, if I could have removed that stigma for him or kind of said, you know, dad, it's no different to smoking. It's no different to eating the wrong foods. 90% of lung cancers are induced by smoking. A massive proportion of coronary heart disease is caused by our lifestyle choices. One of the leading causes of death is um, heart disease. So we're really hypocritical to be saying that alcohol use disorder doesn't deserve the same level of respect and sympathy and empathy that all these other illnesses get. And that is why I'm so passionate now about advocating against the stigma attached to alcohol use disorder. Um, Dave, Sober Dave has been absolutely brilliant in supporting the cause. He's kind of really lifted that platform and given me that voice. I always felt guilty about getting into this. and I felt like I was using my dad's death 
for personal gain because it brings around opportunities as well. But I always attribute my dad's death to saving me. And I think that if my dad knew that he had to die to save one of his girls and to make a difference, and I think he'd have died 10 times over and I know that sounds oh. really it doesn't it doesn't Sarah it's just honestly I, I I don't know your dad but the way you're talking I can't imagine him being anything other than proud of what you're doing for the cause like you said I think it's absolutely and I, I can tell about both of us I'm going to speak on behalf of both of us of why change the habit of a lifetime <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we honestly we think what you're doing is amazing we genuinely oh, do so you know Sarah I just think honestly, more than you probably realise. Like I know now you're kind of seeing things and people talking to you about it and you're getting more opportunities to talk about it. But I still really believe that you're probably doing so much more than you realise by planting these seeds and talking to people. Even for me now, being able to kind of talk about Terry in that way, you know, it's it's helping me and I know and I've watched Alex how she talks about her dad what she was saying before and how it's changed and it's because of talks like your TED talk it's because of the education around it you know and I think you're just doing incredible incredible things and honestly I have no doubt like Alex says that your dad Steve would be so incredibly proud of you because you are incredible you really really are so thank you I wanted you. to ask so much more like I, I, and we haven't got time to do it but honestly I wanted to ask like your sister Sarah's got another job you know, know. <laughs> it is your sister that sings as well isn't it and I wanted to yeah, ask yeah, I wanted to ask too. yeah and I wanted to ask about that but we have we really haven't got time have we now to go you'll have to come back on it's as simple as that oh yeah no, it's been absolutely amazing I've loved it and you know what I yeah I, I if I had more time I've literally I've got I've got a pop over to um the office but this has been absolutely amazing. Like, I Before think you go, Sarah, I'm so sorry, but we can't end it without you doing this. And I know yeah. you've got stuff to go do. On. But we ask all our guests, um, our Be Sober motto is be brave, be kind and be sober. So what we want to know is which of these do you most relate to right now and why? Be kind. Because I think if you're kind, everything else can just follow in place and I think lately I've not been in the best of headspaces myself so I think being kind to myself and being kind to other people and and accepting that I think this is a real difficult time that we're going through as a nation at the moment as a world yeah. and it's having that understanding and that patience for other people and from their perspective so yeah I would say be kind be and then, kind and there's no doubt Sarah that you are really brave as well but uh, yeah I, I, I thought that I thought you might have said be brave but we'll say that you <laughs> are you are an absolute perfect example of somebody who's being brave so oh, thank, thank you. you very much thank, thank you, you on behalf of um, I know you do work around NACOA thank you on behalf of NACOA thank you on behalf of all the children of alcoholic parents oh, um, you're doing amazing genuinely and thanks for coming on our podcast thank you thanks have an amazing me. day at work <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> bye, Sarah. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.
Big thanks to Wise Bartender for sponsoring this episode. If you're experimenting with different alcohol-free drinks and don't want to buy a whole case, Wise Bartender honestly has the largest selection of single bottles ever. So you can have lots of fun trying loads of different drinks or even buy one of their special gift packs. Don't forget to use your 5% discount code BSOBER5 at wisebartender.co.uk. And if you want to find out more about the work we do or you want to join our amazing community here at Be Sober, you can find out more on our website www.besoberofficial.com. Until next time, be brave, be kind and be sober. Be sober.